Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. This email that I read to you yesterday has been getting a tremendous amount of response. Email after email after email after email. It's been getting quite a bit of response on Twitter as well, at The Roy Green Show. And the email read, and I read it here yesterday afternoon, why do you go on and on about Trudeau, about what Trudeau does? If he wants to fly to the Caribbean for the holidays, he has every right to do so. He's the prime minister, and he has more rights than you. Say something constructive instead of complaining. So I just want you to be aware that according to, looking for the name here, I can't find the BW, BW, BW writes, um, if he wants to fly to the Caribbean for the holidays, he has every right to. He's the prime minister and he has more rights than you. Well, he certainly can go on vacation, but when he uses the Challenger jet, then uh, it costs taxpayers money, and I think we should know where our prime minister goes on vacation. Certainly, Barack Obama has had no problem letting Americans know where he goes on vacation. And when it came to using the, uh, the helicopter of the Aga Khan, which is contrary not only to the, the ethics um, of parliament, but also contrary to the law, as I understand it, and I've got some information on that here. There's a lot of explaining to do, and I want you to have a listen to this. We, uh, we, we got this from CBC's um, Audio Vault, and it's Justin Trudeau being asked about and explaining as only he can the use of the Aga Khan's helicopter. You traveled on the Challenger to NASA, and the Aga Khan's island is 115 kilometers from NASA. Could you explain how you traveled from NASA yes. to the Aga Khan's island? Yes. Uh, the, the travel back and forth from NASA to the island uh, happens on uh, the Aga Dasta Yusuf. Uh, and uh, that's something I think we've, uh, we've uh, just, uh, we're in the process of, uh, of uh, explaining in detail to, uh, uh, to the media. Um, and it's something that certainly we uh, look forward to discussing with uh, the conflict of, ethics, uh, conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner. Uh, but uh, we, don't see, uh, we don't see an issue on that. When anybody comes a minister, uh, you have to file a confidential disclosure form with the Conflict of Interest Commissioner. And I'm told that oftentimes that disclosure will include a list of names of friends and relatives who may have dealings with the government. They might be a lobbyist, might be a supplier. I'm wondering, did you supply such a list to the Conflict of Interest Commissioner? Was the AugaCon on that list? And would you now commit to making that list public? Um, the any uh, public office holder or MP has to uh, submit a, uh, and answer a very detailed uh, questionnaire from the Conflict of Interest and uh, Ethics Commissioner on a broad range of things from personal bank accounts to uh, business interests to uh, uh, properties held. Um, I have uh, not seen uh, a list of uh, associates or family friends that could cause uh, problems and I, I didn't provide any names on that but uh, the fact that the uh, Aga Khan has been a, a longtime family friend is uh, well known. He was a, a, a pallbearer at my father's uh, uh, mildly publicized funeral uh, a number of years ago. So uh, there's Justin Trudeau. One of the other pallbearers was, of course, Fidel Castro. And we remember the effusive eulogy the prime minister wrote about Fidel Castro not long ago. Also, uh, reading in a, in a column from uh, the Toronto Sun, the Federal Conflict of Interest Act prohibits ministers from using private aircraft without prior permission from Parliament's Conflict of Interest Commissioner. Trudeau did not seek prior permission. You heard him say that. The act also allows for the use of a private aircraft by a minister in exceptional circumstances, such as an emergency or during the performance of a minister's normal public duties. NDP MP Thomas Mulcair and some experts consulted by The Post about this aspect of the Conflict of Interest Act believe it's an open and shut case that Trudeau broke the law. So there it is, and uh, I'm going to say hello to Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, uh, Justin Trudeau's seatmate, as you know, after listening to this program for some period of time. Michelle is a regular contributor to our Saturday Beauties and the Beast segment, and uh, Michelle was the ethical MP who 
who informed all Canadians on her website about her travel expenses, all the expenses that she ran up as an MP. She listed and posted on her website, and she was punished for doing so by the party. Taken All her speaking privileges in Parliament were taken away after they first tried to bribe her with a larger office and one with a private bathroom. Michelle, as you listen to, thank you for taking the time on Sunday, as you listen to Mr. Trudeau explaining or trying to explain his way around the use of the helicopter, what's your reaction? Well, first off, Roy, thank you for the invitation. This is a treat. Two days in a row. (laughs) Um, There was a lot of stammering in that particular statement. Uh, It was a way of almost pleading guilty, but having an explanation. Uh, When he said he'd known the Agacon since he was a toddler, my question is, and your point is what? The Agacon was a pallbearer. Again, that's irrelevant. He broke the law. And he finally fessed up to, you know, it was all secret it was all hidden and then the, you know the leak started drip 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 and it just seems to me that this government has an ethical deficit that is growing by the week there is no mystery as i understand it there is no mystery about the requirement to inform the federal ethics and conflict of interest minister or, or commissioner about trips that you're taking that will involve using somebody else's private aircraft. No mystery, no, no, no hidden a little clause or paragraph somewhere in some regulation. That's straightforward, is it not? Absolutely. There is no legalese. You would have to be, and excuse this expression, an absolute moron not to read and see that that is not allowed that you, there's a step you have to take, and he just chose not to. Um, I, I have no idea why this government has had such a tin ear about ethics and this type of thing, but it's apparent to me that it does. And when Mr. Trudeau talks about the Aga Khan being a multi-decade family friend, He doesn't mention the fact that the Aga Khan is looking for many millions of dollars from Canadian taxpayers to underwrite some of his charitable efforts. So the the Aga Khan looking for more than $50 million, from what I understand, from the Canadian taxpayer. He then has the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's wife and children at his island. He has the President of the Liberal Party and her husband at his private island. And he has Seamus O'Regan, Liberal MP, and Seamus O'Regan's husband at the private island, and they're flying back and forth on the helicopter. Somebody said, well, there's no other way to get to the island. Well, has anyone ever heard of boats? And I suspect the Aga Khan probably has a nice one of those. Well, has anyone... I can't believe that from Nassau or wherever it is that you couldn't charter your own helicopter. Well, true, yes. I just have trouble believing that there's only one helicopter that can be accommodated on the Aga Khan's uh, island. I think that that was all diversionary. There was only one way. And, you know, it, it, it's all smoke and mirrors to cover for the fact that what he did was wrong and was not in compliance with the law. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Coming up on Friday next will be the inauguration of President Donald Trump, 45th President of the United States. And the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, NBC, ABC, CBS, and other mainstream U.S. media remain in shock at the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency. There are going to be marches and protests, apparently a dance party outside Vice President-elect Pence's home. Hollywood celebrities are refusing to perform at the inauguration. Some who said they would have now canceled. And uh, there are those who are praying, maybe scheming, for a last-minute cancellation of the inauguration of Donald Trump. So how bad is it going to be?
with Trump in the White House. Joining me on the program, as he has many times over the last 10 years, is Dr. Zudi Jasser, co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement in the U.S., president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, and author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. Zudi, you've never been a—thank you for joining us—you've never been a, a, a real supporter of Donald Trump. No, I haven't, and uh, but I will tell you, I am a supporter of my president. And as a conservative, uh, you know, I uh, said on the day he was elected that we conservatives will hold him accountable to our values, and I think it is beyond bizarre at uh, how how apoplectic the left is and, and how unreasonable they are as far as his coverage. And unfortunately, what that does is feed into sort of the hysteria that was part of the campaign and actually makes it much, much worse. And, you know, if you look at this, it's uh, the hashtag, not my president and other things. They're just trying to invalidate the the very substrate of our democracy. And you really, you know, when we're trying to fight ideological wars, as you know, I am against political Islam and collectivist movements around the world, uh, we need to come together. And yes, we'll hold them accountable. But he hasn't even taken office yet, and and yes, the the uh, Mr. Trump has something to do with this. Yeah, some of his, you know, sloppy verbiage and his inability to be clear on what he meant, uh, his uh, sort of scorched earth uh, bullish campaigning was problematic. But 90 plus percent of this, now that the election's done, is we need to keep our democracy stable, be reasonable, and if you look at his cabinet appointments, whether. As a physician, seeing Tom Price being selected as Health and Human Services, a sound conservative, uh, seeing uh, a number of the other, whether it's Secretary Kelly for Homeland Security, uh, uh, Secretary, uh, um, you know, uh, Mattis, who's going to be Department of Defense uh, Secretary. So these appointments are, are fantastic for the most part, and we need to just hold them accountable. That's all. Deal with truth, not with fabrication. So what are the, what are the dangers to the United States internally? From from what you're seeing, all of the consternation, as you said, the uh, the almost uh, at times maniacal uh, demands that Trump be removed before he ever becomes president of the United States. The left media speaking to the unhappy uh, supporters of Hillary Clinton. It just feeds upon itself. The snowball gets larger and larger and larger. Ultimately, what's the danger to the to the United States? Yeah, the danger is is that we end up forgetting what our values are and allowing uh, basically it's just fascinating if you look at the hypocrisy Uh, secretary hillary clinton was very entangled with russia even though she verbally seemed to be a bit more hawkish obviously than mr trump is she her foundation was deeply entangled with qatar and yes when the hearings were being held i was concerned about rex tillerson's uh, connections with russia and his history with qatar and some of the same issues but uh, uh, for crying out loud, the, the hypocrisy from the left coverage of these issues is just bizarre, as if now we've become, uh, um, uh, and I think Mr. Tillerson, I was a very, that was probably the only appointment I was very concerned about, for the most part answered a lot of questions in a very succinct, clear way. Uh, I don't think, I think he should have answered the question from Rubio about uh, whether Putin was a war criminal with a quick affirmative yes, and he did not, so I was very disappointed in that. But uh, at the end of the day, he said now he's uh, looking out clearly for America's interests and not the corporate interests of Exxon. Now, I questioned that, uh, that question by Marco Rubio about uh, Tillerson declaring during his confirmation hearing that uh, Putin is a war criminal. And I did it on this basis. If during your confirmation hearing you declare the president of Russia to be a war criminal, doesn't that really put even the very preliminary conversations after Trump becomes president, doesn't that just put that those very early conversations on a negative footing if you've already declared that the president of Russia is a war criminal? I, I get it. And I could have seen some hedging, um, which would have been, uh, and, and, and I agree, you, you want to, as Secretary of State, he's going to be the lead diplomat, so you don't want to start your diplomacy on a declarative way that he's a war criminal. But he should have gotten a tip to the hat. I mean, every Syrian American I talked to was just flabbergasted that he couldn't even mention the hospitals, the children that were killed by bombs from Russian airplanes, the Russian military that is operating there, 
the the coalescence with uh, Hezbollah in Iran. I mean, while Mr. Tillerson was getting an award from Putin in 2013, Russia was helping Iran bypass sanctions from the West. He should have uh, been asked about that. So there are some issues there that I would have wanted some uh, a bit more clarity from him, and he could have hedged in a way that left him some openings to have a good relationship, at least productive, with Putin. But no, I agree. Uh, at the end of the day, we need to be stronger. I, I agree with that. It's just that declaring the man you're going to have to do business with as the chief diplomat of the United States, declaring him a war criminal before you become confirmed of the Secretary of State, damages the relationship before it ever gets started, although we understand that they've I don't know if they're friends, at least they're friendly, Tillerson and, uh, and Putin. What do you expect is going to happen in Washington on Friday? Is there real reason for concern about this? Well, I think, you know, once the apoplexy uh, starts to go away, they're realizing uh, there's not 12 balls as Obama had, but only three balls. And uh, once uh, the executive branch has changed over and you start to have uh, the machinations of government begin, they'll realize that it's not about one man. It's an entire branch with, with accountability built in. And yes, the fourth estate, uh, the media will hold them accountable, but it should not be a hostile, antagonistic uh, uh, relationship. I hope they're going to settle in on, on clear issues and engage on substance rather than simply on uh, shouting and hysteria. Are you afraid that Trump may engineer policies which are directly negative to to non-whites. That's another thing I continue to hear regularly from angry Trump opponents and that the Muslim community is particularly worried. And then who represents the U.S. Muslim community? As you know, CARE seems to be demanded that it be accepted in that role, and you've debated them on this program. Yeah, the, the lead Islamist apologist, Keith Ellison, who is running for the head of the Democratic Party, declared two days ago that we now have a quote-unquote white supremacist in the White House. I mean, that is the most absurd thing that, that could be stated. I mean, the, the, it seems like the Democrats and the left are embracing their own radical uh, and identity rather than really trying to bring our country together. Uh, there's no evidence that that is going to happen. Uh, their uh, bottom line is that the New Year's party for uh, uh, Mr. Trump, he invited uh, very wealthy individuals from the Middle East, including the billionaire in, in uh, Dubai that he had done business with. So this is a, a guy who's part of the global economic establishment. And having said that, uh, there's no way he's going to be anti-Muslim. A lot of that bloviating he did during the campaign, I think we're going to see gives way to, if anything, I think he'll end up being too soft on radical Islam because, the, as you and I have talked many times, the the core root cause are these petro-Islamic countries, which I think they're going to be strong enough against. So the left is just using us Muslims as a, as a tool to say he's going to be anti-Islam. Uh, Secretary, uh, hopefully, select uh, sessions. Uh, I think uh, the, the commentary from Muslims about what he's going to do is absurd. I testified to Senator Sessions, and I sent a letter to the Judiciary Committee this week basically saying, if you look at the transcript of my interaction with him, he talked about Islam being a beautiful religion and that it's just been hijacked. So the reality of the verbiage of what many of these appointments in the Trump administration have said belies some of the hysteria from Muslims and others on the left. Just to conclude, Zudi, there was an election held. 30 out of 50 states voted for Donald Trump. The fact that the plurality of voters chose Hillary Clinton is irrelevant because the plurality is represented by voters in California and New York, primarily, and those states just have huge populations, and that accounts for the plurality. There was an election. It was a Democratic election. Even the Democrats, who are challenging the Russian involvement, whatever it may turn out to be, in the election, are not questioning Donald Trump's victory at the polls. And now it's an issue of Americans on both sides saying he's the president of the United States, let him do his job, and we'll watch him, and hopefully they'll watch him more objectively than Barack Obama was watched. I couldn't agree more. And I'll remind you, which which I'm sure you know, but remind your listeners that we're a republic. We're not a democracy. We're a federal system. And thank God we don't have simply California and New York deciding on the fate of who is elected in federal offices nationally because there's a reason the Founding Fathers had a Senate bicameral legislature that was uh, one based on uh, two from every state and then a House based on population. 
because it needed a balance of the interests that vary from state to state, and the election of the president should not be any different because and, – and it's amazing the left believes in diversity, wants to simply go by a simple popular vote uh, mandate rather than to say if we're a diverse country – that diversity needs to be represented across the country and not simply based on population bases. And there's some data that shows if we move simply three counties, it would wipe off that three million difference uh, in the uh, tally. So I hope uh, we continue to move. I think you're going to find the Trump administration is probably going to be more towards the center than anyone predicted and probably too, too much to the center for some of us conservatives even. Sudi, thanks for the time. Always appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you, Roy. Appreciate it. Take care. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. As ISIS loses territory in Syria and Iraq, ditto al-Qaeda in some of its strongholds. question that's been asked is, will terror attacks on so-called soft targets in the West increase? You know, we've seen Berlin, we've seen Fort Lauderdale, although that was an airport and normally, I guess, wouldn't be considered a soft target, but we've seen it. We've seen Nice. Um, we're going to talk to former the former commanding officer of Canada's National Counterterrorism Force, JTF2, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, retired, now president of Reticle, a premium niche security solutions company. Colonel Day, good to speak with you again, and thank you for taking the time. And uh, who is who's really the major concern when it comes to terror attacks on Western nations at this juncture in the war with al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups who may be well less known to the public, and as ISIS is geographically diminished in Syria and Iraq, will a corresponding increase in Berlin, Fort Lauderdale, and Jerusalem types of attacks be inevitable? Well, good afternoon, Roy, and Happy New Year to yourself and your listeners. Um, Yeah, it's uh, obviously 2016 in particular was a very, very difficult year on, on many levels, but to to answer your question um, directly, as ISIS kind of yeah starts to collapse in amongst itself, and that that bright flame that was burning in, in, in you know as they like to call the caliphate, as that starts to get extinguished, we are going to see some of these um, non-state actors looking for other avenues to express their dissatisfaction with you know Western life. So I don't know whether that will actually uh, turn into direct attacks against us here in Canada or the U.S. But certainly uh, Europe is at a greater risk just due to the fact that they've got a much larger um, population that's disaffected and just uh, removed from any really chance of pr- prospering in the Western, the Western pro- uh, construct. You know, when you, when you consider this sort of activity, the, uh, the attacks on the soft targets, the, uh, the terrorists acting within the national borders of Western countries, it's a new front in the war on terror which will have opened, and you can't respond with an F-16 from the sky, I would think, or engaging armor. Uh, that would alarm populations and maybe create the impression terror groups are operating in numbers in our backyards. How realistic is that? Well, it's, it's absolutely r- realistic, and, and these terror groups have been operating in our backyards for many years, and, and if not decades. You only need to go back to the late 60s and 70s and deal with the FLQ, in particular here in Canada and Quebec. So those those um, those agencies those those uh, actors are are here today. There's no doubt in my mind that they are operating in Canada. The intelligence agencies and law enforcement have a pretty good idea where they are and what they're up to. The challenge we have is these lone wolf attacks that are inspired by social media or what they're seeing on the news, etc. That's really where the biggest uh, security challenge is for the individual Canadian. Colonel Day, how can the roles of military and police be most effectively combined, and are our combined national and international forces working together cooperatively now? They are working together um, very well. If you look at a pre-9-11 construct to a post-9-11, and then even coming through the late knot, uh, in Canada in particular, we've, we've upped our game significantly. That does not mean we're all the way there yet, because there are still silos. And those silos, quite honestly, are created because the, the national security and national defense agencies are not resourced to the appropriate level in this country to do everything that we're asking them to uh, do. Now, we, don't, we, you know, we as a, uh, individual Canadians need to make the decision on how much money do we want our, our uh, politicians to devote to our national security. And right now, I'll tell you, it is under-resourced. And because it's under-resourced, 
It is sub-optimized in information sharing and, in some cases, joint training. So I was actually going to ask you whether governments are moving sufficiently rapidly to identify, engage, and remove as threats individuals or groups who are radicalizing by online messaging from IS and AQ, or do politicians care more about voting blocks and therefore hobble military and police uh, doing their jobs properly? Well, it's not so much that they, they hobble them, but they, again, as they say, it's not resource to the level. So we also have this constant tension between public safety and national security and our freedoms, liberties, and prosperities that we all want to pursue in, in this great nation called Canada. So you're always going to have this tension between how much security and public safety do you need and how much freedom of, of the press, for example, freedom of online uh, information sharing. And it's a difficult, difficult uh, balancing act to achieve that. So we have an idea, and a very good idea of where the problem is. The question is, how do you resolve that complex situation where do we want to move into a paradigm where it's preventative arrest? In some cases, I think we should be doing that, but now we need to have a real hard look and long look about what does a preventative detainment or arrest look like. Let me take it right into, uh, into the family home, Colonel Day. What should people be preparing themselves for, or at least understand may happen at any time? I don't want to frighten people, but there are families with kids, and they say, what do we do? What can we do to, to look out for ourselves? Well, as, a, as an individual Canadian, I think a couple of things that would be useful is, is Gwyn Dwyer last year wrote a book called Don't Panic. And it's, uh, it's actually a very interesting read, fairly easy read, on his assessment of ISIS and terror in today's Middle East and how it spills over into North American camps. So as a Canadian, I think educating themselves on, on the threat, keeping that threat in perspective, and then looking about, as they're going about their daily lives, being aware of what's going on around them. Because whether it's simple workplace violence or being in a soft target like you had mentioned, um, it's, it's highly unlikely it's going to happen to a Canadian, but when it happens, it would be awfully nice to be prepared and uh, have maybe a little bit of training and some courses on how to deal with an active assailant, for example. I have less than a minute. Uh, I was talking to somebody who's involved in security uh, the other day, and they mentioned uh, prison inmates exposed to daily encouragement to fight for jihad. Is, is that a factor? It, it is a factor, but again, more so in Europe than in North America. Like Europe has got a systemic, significant challenge with a extremely large... Uh, um, you know, not to paint any, any communities with a brush, but a Muslim-based ideological uh, Islamic fringe elements that, um, that are fueling a lot of this problem. So Europe's got a significant challenge. North America, we've got challenges, but quite honestly, our challenges are more in the, the copycat, lone actor, uh, mentally disabled, uh, you know, dis- uh, unstable individual than, than necessarily prisons uh, inciting violence in this jihadi kind of mentality. Yeah. But as you've said to us before, this is not uh, going to be over quickly. This is going to be a multi-decade struggle that's going to take uh, take its time to, uh, to be resolved. Colonel Day, thank you so much, and uh, all the best in 2017 to you. Yeah, same thing right back at you, Roy, and again, to your listeners, all the best for 2017. Thanks, Colonel Day. Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of JTF2 Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Force, Special Forces Unit. And interestingly, uh, JTF2 is the only Special Forces Unit that has the, internationally, that has the mandate to operate domestically and internationally. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Last weekend, I uh, shared an email that I received from a friend in Ontario, and uh, she had received an extremely high electricity bill, three times what she normally would have paid last year or the year before. And what she did was call to complain and basically was blown off, and she decided that she would pay installments to make her point. And by the time she got to just before Christmas, she still owed them $500. And she received a hand-delivered letter in her mailbox stating that if she hadn't paid the $500, by the middle of the afternoon on Christmas Eve, they would start disconnecting right after New Year's. And, of course, you can't talk to anybody because they're all gone. And so the threat is viable, the threat is right there, and that was in Burlington, Ontario. So I started to ask whether you thought that um, the increase in electricity prices in Ontario 
Kathleen Wynne's mistake, the Premier's mistake, which is causing half a million people to run into difficulties paying the bills. People are making decisions about whether or not they can heat their homes or buy food or buy clothing. They can't afford all three because of the electricity increases. And then we started to talk as well about the carbon tax in Alberta and asking whether it was hurting people. And we asked you the question whether you thought this was really about these taxes. Cap and trade, carbon, whatever one is calling her electricity tax, because that's what it is. Whether you thought it was really for the good of the planet or to redistribute wealth. And the, I think everybody said it was about wealth redistribution. And we got two calls that I want to play back for you now. Two calls that stood out with me. The first call was from a woman in Orangeville, Ontario. And she was afraid of losing her home. She lives in a co-op. And she was afraid of being evicted because of the increase in the price of electricity. Listen to her explain her situation to me. I am a full-time university student. I have two kids. Um, We've had a battle with hydro going on for the last four to five years. Um, We're fortunate enough because we do live in a co-op, so our rent is based on income. Um, So we're fortunate that way. But we've gone from like $200 hydro bills up to almost $650. Wow. For what? For how long a period? Two months? Uh, no, that's only for one month. One month? For one month, yes. We're in a townhouse, and I'm married. I have, like I said, I have two daughters. And um, this hydro issue has been going on. We, you know, you're always receiving those threatening letters of disconnection, which, of course, are terrifying, you know, being a parent. Um, and trying to go through school. But what's happened now, which I'd like to see if, like I said, if anybody has any knowledge, um, is apparently over the last few months, um, the hydro company would always say, you know, as long as you pay your electricity portion of the bill, um, you know, we won't disconnect, you'll be fine, which which was done. And then all of a sudden, um, I was called in to our co-op office and told that um, Orangeville, the hydro company had billed the town of Orangeville for the water portion of my bill over the last year, which was like 2000 and something dollars. Oh, my God. Yeah, (laughs) I know. And apparently there's another bill coming in. And what is going to happen is I had to um, sit down with them work out a repayment plan because I was told that they, like the... The co-op will have, or like the county of Dufferin will have to pay uh, that water portion of the bill, but I need to go on a repayment plan to pay them back. So not only will I have the astronomical hydro bill per month, but also uh, this repayment plan that I had to sign. Now what's scaring me is that this repayment plan has to go before the board of of directors here where I live. And I was told that if they don't approve it, that I will face eviction. You know, this sounds like the USSR. (laughs) It was absolutely terrifying. And I'm still feeling that way because I have lived here for 10 years, basically. No trouble at all. And then, and I don't see how this can be something that's legal because... No, you know what it is? You know what it is, Vi? It's a a mistake. It is. That's what the Premier said. She made a mistake. You're suffering because of her mistake. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's absolutely scary. So look, I I gather there's no way that you can cover all of this off. No, there's no way. Like, I I thought... um, you know, but when you're told from the hydro company, oh, you're okay as long as you pay off the electricity portion of the bill. Being in school, and I go to school, like I'm going through Laurentian University, I go to school right. all year, so I'm not working, but I am trying, and, and it's just, um, it's very frustrating. Do you have a, do you know if your MPP is, uh, is liberal or, or NDP or PC? Actually, <laughs> I should probably know that, but I don't. Actually. Well, I, I, you know, what about other people in the, in your co-op? 
would, can you, I'm trying to think of a way that you could exert some pressure, but they're just going to push back. And that's what's scary, because the people who run the office, like you think, like when I signed that form for the repayment plan, mm. I was thinking, okay, it's done, you know, we'll, we'll just have to do it. Like, we don't have a choice, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll stick to this plan. But then when, as soon as I was told that it's actually not up to them, it's up to the board of directors. So if they, if the people on the board choose to not accept my repayment plan, how, how is that even possible when I was doing what the hydro company told me know, to do? I know. When you moved in there, you had an expectation of paying a certain amount for hydro. Right. And that's the way it was until right. this government... Yep. Changed everything exactly, and now suddenly your 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 hydro rates have tripled. Oh yeah, your water yeah. rates have tripled. Yeah. By the way, for the you're you're paying about I think the actual hydro is about twenty three percent of your bill. Right. The delivery charge is seventy seven percent of your bill. Yes. And yes. and I don't know I Vi, I wish I had an answer, but I don't have I an answer for you. No, I know, and and that's the problem. That's why I was hoping... You know, the person, the people who have to have the answer are the people who run the government of Ontario. Yes. And that doesn't just mean the Liberals, because they created the mess, and they deserve to be kicked out on their backsides for what they've I done. Agree. Right? But <laughs> yeah. I don't hear anything from Patrick Brown, and yeah. Mr. Brown's been on this program and talking about this issue. I didn't hear anything from Patrick Brown that made me feel that he had a particular uh, a rescue plan uh, that, that was ready to go, and I spoke with uh, with Joe Oliver, the former federal finance minister, who's going right. to be running for the con- Progressive Conservatives. He didn't have an immediate plan, and you hear nothing from the NDP. So, no, people no, are people are where, people cannot pay these hurt. bills, and people like you are getting hurt. Yes, and that's the frustrating part: yeah. is people who are trying to get ahead, go through school, you know, and just I manage day day to day. And then, you know, you have this fear constantly over you. Like, you know, if you're living I'm going to invite the environment minister on this show. Yeah. I wonder if he'll come on. We'll ask. Okay. Well, I'll keep listening. (laughs) All right. And I'm trying to get some answers for you. One of the best things we can do is just keep ringing the alarm bells. Yes. Keep ringing the alarm. How old are your kids? Uh, One is 15 and one is 9. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and they're very good kids. Like, I mean, other other than that, it's just the stress of having that constant fear of disconnection or, you know, and trying to, you know, you you live in these places to try to get yourself ahead, and that's why I'm going through school. So you're trying all the time. But when your hydro bill is more than your rent, there's a problem, and there's no explanation. There's a a young mom in uh, Orangeville, Ontario. Her hydro bill, her electricity bill, has gone from $200 a month, which I think is excessive in and of itself, to $650 a month. She can't afford it. And so they meet with the co-op board, and they put together a plan which supposedly is going to satisfy the board as far as getting caught up is concerned on, on arrears. But if the board of directors says no to the plan that she agreed to that the the board came up with, she would lose her home. And Kathleen Wen says, well, I made a mistake. So her hydro rates have tripled, her water rates have tripled, and that's not the only story in the province of Ontario. There are many. There are many. There are people who have had their hydro, their electricity cut off for months. And there's no reason for it. Because, as has been pointed out on this program, it has never been less expensive to produce electricity in Ontario. It has also never been more expensive to buy it. And that's because of the mishandling of the issue and the mishandling of money by the Liberal government. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You know, really, it's a bizarre, 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 bizarre statement that um, Kathleen Wynne made. But she made a mistake. She made a mistake. The pain, the suffering that people in the province of Ontario are experiencing because they can't afford their electricity, can't afford their water. Well, it's just a mistake. Thank you, Premier. That mistake should cost you your job. Period. Mistake. Mistake. 
It's like Trudeau on Friday saying, well, we're going to phase out the oil sands. Whoops. 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 Didn't mean to say that. Well, you did. And so what's happening in Alberta? Well, there's the carbon tax. And they're already handing out rebates to some. And that speaks to the fear that the government is experiencing. They spent $9 million to advertise the carbon tax to Albertans. That's another expression of fear by the government. All you have to do is for the, to, to look at the success of carbon tax, carbon taxation. And I'm working on this. I'm working on an interview. Hopefully we'll have it on for next weekend. I'm working on it. Um, but all you have to do is look at Australia, which in 2014, and you've heard me say this more than once, but it bears to be repeated because it's important. Australia tried the carbon taxation for two years. They had more than a thousand pages of legislation. More than a thousand pages of legislation. How many little trees lost their lives? And then they dumped it. And why did they dump it? If you look on the Australian government's website, they'll tell you it's because it was harming business, the economy, and families. So they got rid of it. Meanwhile, we have a prime minister who demands the provinces must have some form of carbon taxation or he's going to stamp down his little foot. And the only sensible person provincially is Brad Wool. Premier of Saskatchewan, who was on this show and said that after Trudeau initially had gone on about how there was going to be a carbon tax, national carbon tax, Mr. Wall asked him, Trudeau, have you done a financial impact state study? No. So the prime minister is going to introduce a tax which fundamentally changes the methodology. The, the fundamentals of taxation in Canada is going to harm people because they don't have the money. It's going to harm people because everything's going to be more expensive. It's going to lose jobs until you prove me wrong. And he, has he done a financial impact statement? No. Not sure Trudeau knows what a financial impact statement is. Uh, so we had a call that really troubled me last Sunday from Ken in Alberta. Have a listen. I'm a heart patient. Uh, last April on uh, 16, I had a heart attack. I'm a truck driver. Uh, I've been off work since then. I've been getting a check from Social Health Services for 850 a month. Uh, right now, I'm living in an RV. Uh, I can't afford to get propane because they won't help me. I've tried everything. I've talked to everybody. And uh, I'm getting pretty stressed out, and I'm getting chest pains. So I uh, uh, put a, a thing in for my doctor to see him on Monday. And uh, everything I've tried has just flipped me right in the face. You know, I've talked to everybody, and everybody says, well, we're not equipped to handle propane, and we can't help you out. We so nothing for you. There, there, there's nothing for you. Yeah, there's nothing for you, I can. But that doesn't solve the problem. Tomorrow it's going to be minus 34 here. You know, what am I going to do then? You know, and propane's gone up $20 a bottle that I'm using for my RV, a 100-pounder. It went up $20 to the carbon tax. I can't afford to fill it as it is, and now they're, they're, they're bumping it up 20 bucks. What am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do, yeah? You know? Have you tried, I mean, have you tried, Ken? What if I drop dead overnight in here? Ken, have you tried uh, the United Way? Have you tried um, agencies like the United Way? No, I haven't. Try them. Yeah? Try them. Try the United Way. Try the Salvation Army. Because I find this is a a, a form of bullying, you know? No, I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's exactly the word that I used for my friend when she told me what she was encountering, and I read her email. It's bullying. Yeah, and that's against the law. Why are they getting away with it? Yeah, why are they getting away with it? So a man who's recovering from a heart attack, and heart disease is terrifying, as those of us who've experienced it know, he can't afford the extra $20, Premier. Premier Notley? 
He can't afford the extra $20. Nobody's helping him. He's getting $850 a month and nobody's helping him. What is that about? Really, seriously, what's it about? Why is there no help for somebody like Ken? Sometimes you, look, you need to look into, into your own home. You need to look into your own, into your own situation and find, out people, find people who need help and give them the help. Why, can't, why is it allowed for someone like Ken to worry about minus 34 degree weather, not have $20, the extra $20 to buy the propane bottle that the carbon tax has? has resulted in uh, an increase. I'm, I'm just absolutely disgusted. Meanwhile, the politicians, they just tell us what to do. And they wonder why there's public pushback. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. First off, uh, on behalf of everyone here, let me uh, say thank you, not just for everything you do, but for sharing that extraordinary story with us. Your uh, strength, your determination is uh, uh, an inspiration and example to us all. Um, we are a country in which uh, anyone with a quarter of your strength, of your drive, uh, should be uh, thriving and focused on how are you going to spoil your grandchildren uh, with all your energy as opposed to uh, how are you going to get through the week uh, or the day. Um, a lot of different elements come into your, into your question. A, a number of them are provincial. Uh, hydro bills are uh, provincial. But as you point out, uh, the, federal, uh, the, the federal government's decision to put a price on carbon uh, is something that we have uh, moved forward with. And it's one that is uh, causing consternation amongst uh, a, a broad range of people. And I, I understand because uh, carbon and carbon emissions and carbon uh, is oh, part please. of uh, everything. Please, please, please. Enough. Francesca Dobbin, the executive director of the United Way in Bruce and Gray counties in Ontario, joins us on the show. It's been a few weeks since we've talked, Francesca. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I, I was wondering. I was worried to lost my number. No, no, <laughs> no. I would, ne- would never do that. You're the most brave person I know. <laughs> And, and you're absolutely fearless, and you defend the people who need defending, as we've clearly found out and, and heard, uh, you know, with you and, and people who you represent with the, uh, the United Way and also callers that we've had. So how are things with, uh, with, with I mean, give us an example uh, of, of somebody who's struggling, trying to pay their bills, and, and how they're handling it. What are, you, what are you looking at? What are some of the cases you're looking at now? Oh, our cases are very typical, very similar to what you're hearing from the, the callers into your um, into the radio show here. Um, we had um, I had a woman uh, last week, early in the week, who was messaging me through Facebook. Was in the hospital uh, with a severe medical emergency. Was and she was messaging me as she came to from the painkillers. So I'd get her for about an hour trying to clarify some stuff, and then they'd give her more medication, and she'd be gone. And she was trying to uh, work with us to see if we could get her oil because she was she'd put the last you know five six ten dollars of what she had into diesel instead of furnace oil because uh, she could buy it like that and um, they had no money working two jobs like about the husband and the wife working and they were getting behind and so there she is in the hospital trying to apply and access services. Oh my goodness. It was just crazy trying to uh, to talk to her. Um, we've got That's lots awful. of other people in very similar um, situations. You know, we've got the moratorium on disconnects for Hydro One, uh, but not the moratorium on all the other small, you know, um, electricity companies such as West Aerial Power uh, throughout the province who are disconnecting and are disconnecting through the winter. And we're trying to keep the, those folks connected with the various programs. In the middle of winter. On. In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter, and you have a you have somebody who's just coming out of surgery, is in and out of consciousness, and her concern 
is how am I going to heat my home? How am I going to pay for all these bills? And and I better I better get in touch with Francesca while I'm lucid enough to do so while I'm in the hospital. Exactly. Like that should never be. You know, getting better and recovering from being ill is not sitting there going, okay, my kids are at home and my, my husband, how do I get to keep them warm while I'm at the hospital getting, you know, three meals a day and I'm warm? That should never be a conversation. I, I, there are times I, I don't know what to say. There, there are many times in a day I don't know what to say. And I just think, you, you think, okay, I've just about run into every situation. Oh, here's a new one. This is a new situation. Um, you, you wonder, yeah, you wonder how is it that the, the the people who created this chaos, this mess, this pain, this unnecessary chaos, pain and mess, why are they so unable to understand what they've created? Staying, saying I've made a mistake, or the prime minister stammering around about he didn't obviously didn't really listen to what the woman had to say. Uh, stammering around trying to explain why a carbon tax is necessary while he's just made a huge carbon footprint with his vacation. It's, there's just a, there's just a, they're tone deaf. There's a disconnect. These people, people like you just described need help. They need it now. They don't need it. Yes. They need it yesterday, not just today. Yeah. And, and there's a, a real unawareness when we talk to people in, um, urban downtown Toronto, um, about what's happening in rural and, when I see the conversations online, uh, certainly um, the lady, uh, Kathy, I think her name is, um, you know, when that video went live and everybody saw it and the conversations, you know, people in Toronto were saying, well, how is it possible? My hydro bill is only, you know, $75. And it's like, you have no idea what's going on up here. And, you know, well, here's the link to the calculator. Here's the link to this. This is what's happening in the province. You cannot, you know, for some, you can't bring the bill down. And, and for others, there's no choice and no other opportunity. You know, there is no natural gas. Can't afford solar. Can't afford the green energy pieces. It's just unattainable. I um. I uh, I. <laughs> I don't know what to say. One thing I want to interest people. I'll take over. Um, one of the things with the, the woman with the co-op. One I'm worried about is that there was a language issue here because hydro can also mean water. Yeah. And if she's got a PUC, public utility company, that is um, charging her both for water consumption and for electrical consumption, and if she's saying hydro meaning electricity and they're saying hydro meaning water, and then you get all into that muddle. So she was told to pay the hydro person the consumption portion of her hydro bill. Let me do this, because we've got very little time left. I'm, would you come back next weekend? Um, I can't. I'm, I'm out of the country. Okay, so we'll get, you back. we'll get you back when you're back. But I'll ask that, uh, that caller to send me an email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Hope she's listening, the, the, the woman who's having the concern about the, yeah, uh, the I, co-op I'm not unit. I'm on her, yeah, but yeah. I, I'm just concerned when you know, I see these bills yeah. start getting combined when you've got a PUC. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Francesca, we will talk when you're back, and, and we'll schedule some real time and take some calls. Thank you so much for joining us today. Alrighty. Thanks for everything you do. Oh, really fast. Give us the name of the, the, the website, quick. Um, donatetoday.ca is uh, where you can donate to help us out, and okay. you can find out about everything we do on our utility files. Okay. Google United Way Bruce Gray. Donatetoday.ca. CA. Thanks, Francesca. All right, thanks. All the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.